Hello and welcome to the PD Performance Podcast. This week's podcast is a conversation with my first ever mentor and now good friend, strength and conditioning coach, Daniel Moore. Dan is working as an SNC for Blackrock College, Lansdowne Rugby Club and Wicklow GAA. We had a conversation about all those pursuits, particularly his work in the youth strength and conditioning sector and PE department in Blackrock College. We had a very deep conversation about why he coaches and what he thinks makes a good coach. And then we moved on to talking about his participation in RTE's show Ultimate Hell Week last year, what he gained from that experience and what he learned about himself over the course of those eight days. This is a really, really interesting one, guys, so I hope you enjoy it. And remember, if you do enjoy it, please like it, share it, and send it. This podcast is sponsored by Coach Sam Portland, who is also known as Coach Portland on Instagram and Facebook. Sam has devised a mentorship program for strength and conditioning coaches that gives them the tools to take control of and change their lives. I can testify to this given that I participated in the programme earlier this year. Sam has coached international rugby players, Olympic athletes and elite level American footballers. Using all of his experience, the mentorship programme puts you, the coach, first, giving you systems of application from speed and change of direction to the minute detail of speed coaching, programme development, injury rehab and much, much more. It will help you distill your current knowledge and allow you to beat the battle of information overload the industry currently faces. What separates this mentorship program from the rest is the personal development aspect. 50% of the program is dedicated to you getting to know yourself further as a coach. I can safely say that this is the aspect that makes the most meaningful and significant change, helping you to find the right balance between elite level coaching and living a happy and purposeful life. If you're interested and want to learn more, for PD Performance Podcast listeners only, Sam is offering five 60-minute coach audit calls valued at £150 for free. To register for this unique opportunity, send Sam an email with the subject line PD Performance Mentorship to sam at coachsportland.co.uk. Only five audit calls are up for grabs, so go and get after it. Now, on to the podcast. Daniel Moore, we've had a good little chat there off air. Well, how's it all going today? Busy? Uh, good, mate. Yeah, uh, busy in the morning. So uh, we've changed to a one hour period in school at the moment. So I was teaching PE this morning and that's uh, four hours. So it's two doubles, two two hour PE classes. So I um, was really busy this morning, especially just getting the new uh, first years up to speed of what we do. So um Last year was the first year we started putting uh, weight training in the first year PE. So uh, that was really successful. And we were something we want to continue and we want to get more weight training and, st- and, and resistance training into our PE curriculum as the years go on. So we've 200 kids in a year. So that's um, there's eight classes. So that's two hours every week. We try and fill it with loads of different stuff. But at the moment, yeah, our, our weights is a big focus or our resistance training is a big focus. So every kid in first year gets exposure to weight training, which is class. You know, we're really happy with that. So that's deadly. But 
did you have the first years doing their weight training today? Have you already started inducting them into that? So our big focus at that age is actually emotional maturity. And can they sit down, keep their mouth shut, not distract anybody and follow instructions? That's actually our biggest, that's our biggest focus for the first few weeks. So we would have started today. We would have split, there's another PE teacher I worked with me. So we split them. So there's 24, 25 kids in a class. We split them into groups of 12, 13, and we'll get one group in the gym and the other group will do throwing and catching. So we would have identified, and, and I think everybody's identified that the cost of a year-long lockdown on children's motor skills has been uh, quite severe. So we, tr- we have pared back our PE program to make it very, very basic actually less games because what we found was when they play games they don't possess the necessary skills or have lost the necessary skills to play those games and enjoy them so they ended up not liking PE so what we try to do now is have a much more pared down much more basic PE curriculum of can they throw and catch a tennis ball you know that's that we've actually gone back that far to standing 10 meters apart and learning how to probably do an overhand throw and how to catch an object properly um, because the standard of games you were having kids just were switching off and and the basic motor skills are so important for self-efficacy within games and, and within sports so we are quite lucky that we would have identified that and would have the resources and the ambition to look to fix it um, because we are a school that really prides ourselves on our sporting you know our, our, our sporting successes across a broader range of sports so it's been yeah it's been interesting of, of taking the whole thing back to zero and actually utilizing our time correctly we have two hours because it's gone to a one hour time table we have two two hours of PE every single week you know how can we best utilize that and how can we best align that with the vision of the school and where that we want to take the sporting program within the school so we would be known as a school that plays a lot of rugby but we have some very talented tennis players golfers uh, Gaelic footballers hurlers, track and field athletics, um, cricket, cricket, table tennis, we're rowing. Again, we're getting strong in these areas. So can we put a, a very broad ranging PE curriculum in place that hopefully maximizes those kids going into whatever field they want? You know, we don't want to just focus on the rugby program. We want every kid to play at the highest level they can possibly play at and enjoy their sport because the ramifications of what has just happened in terms of very long lockdown won't be seen for 10 years. And I would imagine that the rates of obesity, the dropout rate in sports are going to be so high uh, in five to six years compared to what they are now. And we're trying to be proactive and look to negate the impact of that lockdown um, as soon as possible. Yeah, because the research will show that early sports specialization is not the best way to develop athletes even, or even people in general. They want to get exposure to a multiple uh, number of different sports and play whatever they want and see what works for them. Because you know yourself, like if a child is forced down one route, then they're probably more likely to drop out of playing that sport or any sport whatsoever after that, because that's all they've known. So they, they don't have the necessary level of self-efficacy required to go into another sport. So I suppose by developing the skill first, and the skills that are applicable to a number of ball sports, you're probably empowering them with the tools to be able to play whatever sports they want and to be confident enough to go and do so. 
And so then when you're breaking down the skills in the PE curriculum, do you break it down to skill first and focus on developing that before then kind of gamifying it and making it more competitive? Um, no, it's probably more of an, uh, the, the two will be done in alignment, but we emphasize teaching and coaching more within the skill development side of things because you have to play games with them. Mm. Or you have to be smart with how you do it and say, right, how can we play a game that's actually going to be a really skilled, like a, a skill development based game? Yeah. Um, to, to go back to what you're saying about early, early specialization and late specialization, we are in the, currently in the process of completely revamping our coaching structure within the school as well. We have, we have had incidences before and I still see it where all our kids at a young age, you know, from junior infants all the way through to, to uh, let's say, they're really active in PE uh, probably first year they all play rugby and they don't get exposed to a lot of other sports so we have cases where we might play basketball in third year PE and they they still throw basketball at a rugby ball yeah you know they, their skills are so specific to the sport that they play so we've we've put a huge amount of effort over lockdown and lockdown has been great for us because it's given us a real period of reflection of what is our vision for black rock sport where do we want to take it and, and what steps do we need to take to get it there? But it's it's hugely important to play a multitude of different sports and multitude of different skills because um, everything is, every, the majority of sports they'll end up playing will be late specialization. We have no divers, we have no gymnast, gymnasts. Um, it'll all be field sports mainly. Yeah, it's it's a hard one as well when you're developing kind of games or developing drills and for sessions for PE um classes or whatever because like even i see it with adults when we go to um, focus on our sprint mechanics and we get them running at the same time mm -hmm. they will treat it as a race mm -hmm. and even though we've been working on developing the technique for about five minutes before that and we've been doing drills conducive to improving their running and sprinting technique the second that they make it themselves a competition I, like i'm not making it a competition but people in general are going to want to compete mm -hmm everything we've worked on just falls out the window and they just try and get from A to B as fast as possible. And what we've been working on, what we're trying to rep, uh, doesn't happen or doesn't occur. So maybe when you go into that competitive environment too early and before they've developed the skill to a necessary level that they can execute it under, under pressure or um, they're putting themselves under pressure, I suppose, it's not the best way to develop athleticism as vague as that sounds, I guess to just go straight competition. And that's the way that Ireland typically has done things for years and years on end is, I should play a match. And there's merit in that as well. But if you're trying to actually develop everybody across the board, some lads aren't going to be able to compete with the others, as you said there yourself. Yeah, I suppose a simple analogy I try and use is, well, playing, the, playing the game is like, like, a, like an orchestra. But in order for that orchestra to function properly, they don't train together as an orchestra all the time. They split it into percussion and their string quartets and stuff like this. And, and the skills to play the game are the same. So what you actually have to do is you have to master your craft. So if I put a cello, I don't just turn up in the National Concert Hall and expect to just concert my way to being a top-class cellist. No, I master my craft, spend hours on it, and then I can maybe be part of a string quartet that plays together and learns to play together. And then we actually part of a broader orchestra. And I think that that's um that's a good way to focus on on developing uh, and on structuring your sessions of master the most simple 
craft first and then look to make it more complex. And your skill as a coach is bridging the gap. So again, use another analogy, it's like boiling frogs. So if you throw, if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll just jump out. But if you throw a, a frog into a pot of cool water and gradually make it a cent uh, one degree centigrade hotter as it goes, it'll stay in there until it boils. And it's probably the same with how we apply or how we introduce competitiveness to our drills. So um, to, to, to use the example that you just used there, okay, yeah, let's practice our, our, let's practice our acceleration over five meters. But then let's not go straight into racing. Let's do like a waterfall start where lane one goes. Once he's gone, lane two goes. And we start to add slight increments of competitiveness to it, but they're learning to uh, they're learning to apply the skills they just learned in a more closed, slower speed, less competitive environment into a more competitive. It's exactly what I did as well. After the first session, the yeah. lads all ran and they yeah. ran with each other about 30 of them and everybody wanted to win, technique went out the window. And then when you do those waterfall starts, it's great as well, because even though they're going to focus more on technique and there's more of an acceptance that they're probably not going to catch the person in front of them, they're still going to try and catch the person in front of them. So there still is some sort of a competitive element, but it's just um, broken down slightly more, I suppose. So there's obviously great merit in that as well. And then the other thing that I spoke about in the podcast with Jamar Hall, we spoke about even within sport, if they're playing one sport and they have one standout quality, you'll see it, especially in the junior cycle students or the younger lads, they'll fall back on that quality again and again and again. And this is kind of the stuff we talked about in terms of maturation before, like the, the guy that is, uh, Jamar made the point that the guy that takes that growth spurt earlier he might win all the balls. He's come from Gaelic football. So he might win all the balls in the air up until the age of 16, 17. And then he goes to senior and he's winning no balls in the air because at a, an underage level, he's taller than everybody. So he hasn't even had to jump to win those yeah. balls. So he's never developed the skill to be able to jump. So then when he goes to play against guys that are his height, he's not able to jump them because he hasn't worked on it. So by getting exposure to multiple different skills and multiple different games, which they do through the PE department here, um, they're going to develop the different qualities that are necessary to be able to play a sport at the high level. Because you know yourself, like once you get to that high, high level of performance, every athlete or every person will have one standout quality. But the higher you get, the the more there is a need to be able to handle yourself at all the other necessary qualities while at the same time having that standard quality above everybody else. Would that be fair? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually at those higher levels, someone will just be very outstanding at something. But to go back to suppose, the change we're trying to make, it's, it's very easy in a school environment. Well, it's not that it's easy, but it's something that we speak about a lot is can we, so if somebody is a very early developer and somebody they're six foot one as a first year and they're 85 kilos as a first year and suddenly they can just literally run over the top of every single player. You know, I, I don't know if I've ever seen, shown you the photo of Billy Fundapola when he's 11 years old. He's yeah. actually 120 kilos compared to this other kid. Um, so I suppose something that we would like to do in the future in, in BlackRock is, um, you know, can we, can we take that early developer and actually expose him to a level of competition above what he's capable of. So can we put him with a junior thirds team and even one, even one session a week, 
um, you know, can he, can, let's see, you know, can he survive when the physical aspect is taken out of it? I mean, you look at a lot of our most successful rugby players that have come through here have been very late developers. So Hugo Keenan's one. Hugo Keenan didn't make the junior cup team. He only became the SAT player as a sixth year. Uh, Gary Ringrose was a nine up until he was in fifth year, wouldn't have made the team because we had a very good nine guy called Charlie Rock. So one of our coaches moved him to 13 and that was the end of that story. Um, there's been loads of loads of examples of very, very late developers and they have usually been the most successful. And that's actually probably what we'd, we'd actually like to look for. Because if you're a very late developer, you have to learn to find ways of playing the game without physicality. So again, if you're using an analogy, you know, sports, sports like a game of poker in some ways, what really matters is how you play your cards, how, what the decisions you make, the skills that you use. That's actually really what matters. But the physical attributes are like the buy into the poker table. So if you don't have those physical attributes or you're very low in those physical attributes, it's quite hard to buy into the table. But if you have a load of money, you can buy into higher levels. With that younger kid, he has to learn how to play his cards correctly. Otherwise, he just gets found out. So a, a huge amount of our best players have actually been very, very late developers. And we're very lucky that we have the resources and the structure within the school to um, manage them through their growth spurt. And let's say they don't make a squad because they're just too small. Let's say a guy leaves junior rugby and is just too small to play senior rugby. You still get a very high standard of rugby. You still get a, a supervised, structured SNC program. So that when he does, you know, post PHV, he will still be more than capable of, of, of mixing up the best. You know, we don't just forget about them because they're too small. It's like actually, let's he's he's not ready right now, but let's still put resources into him because he will be good and it's still the right thing to do. It's very important to give them the right amount of challenge, I suppose, isn't it? Like what you touched on there, the guy that is that early developer throwing them in against some of the older kids. Not that we're going to talk about rugby for the whole podcast, but even to just use the example of the system that they had in place in New Zealand for quite a long time. Now, it's not perfect based on weight, but you would still see in the All Blacks now, there would be a lot of players that have come through that would be smaller in stature than, say, players in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in the backs. Like, if you look at the likes of Damien McKenzie, like, it's well known that he has been smaller than everyone for his whole career, but he's still been class for his whole career and his underage career as well, because they would have played him against players that were probably not even of a similar stature because he was known to be quite small, but at least closer to his stature. So then he could he could then get more touches on the ball and he would be used more. So then he would develop his skills better uh, and he'd get more touches. And then when he went to that higher level, he had developed his skills to be able to stay away from smaller, quicker players. So then staying away from the bigger, slower players, not necessarily all of them are going to be slower, but the bigger, slower players was a piece of piss for him, essentially. Like Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we're looking to do here. So we're re, uh, we're leveling some of our pitches. So Black Rock College is on a slight hill. So we're looking to renovate some of our pitches and get them level so that they're perfectly flat. And our plan is, so that'll be done next September. Our plan is to have a first ever weight category rugby tournament as an opening of, of those pitches. So talk to a few people exactly now of how we'll run it, but that's the plan. We'll get other schools and it'll be done on weight categories, probably amongst maybe maybe six class first year and second year uh, and it will be done on weight and let's see let's see how, how it does how it goes because 
we, I suppose, are quite ambitious as a school and we want to kind of change the way coaching is done in this country. And, and we feel that we're in a position to uh, really positively impact the way things are done. And that's going to be one of the things that we, we really focus on is um, and, and long term potentially get to something along the lines of you rather than them just you know at those at, at that primary school level rather than them just training with their class actually maybe one day a week they just train with people the same size as them and if we can get to that stage uh, i'd be very very happy that's great because i think a major factor in kids dropping out of playing rugby and i think a lot of kids do drop out at that age they say oh, i'm going to play ga i'm going to play soccer instead because of the size advantage that is against me or, or the size disadvantage that I have to deal with. And I think that is usually a massive factor because we all know like the stories of when we're playing under 12s, under 13s, under 14, and you have one guy that's just way bigger than everyone. The, like, the example I will use is probably playing against Burr, playing for Ross Grave back in the day, and they had Peter Dooley on their team. And Peter used to be a back rower before he converted to a front row, but he was still just as big as he is now, I suppose. And they used to just give him the ball and Peter would just run in try after try after try. Now, the good thing about that was Jerry was the coach, his dad. So Jerry used to pull him off after he scored three tries. So then we'd actually get to touch the ball a little bit more. But that happens at, at rugby clubs around the country. And then the smaller guys are just like, I'm not bothered with this anymore because I can't make any sort of difference. I can't get over a gain line. I can't enjoy it if I'm not going to get on the ball. And I can't tackle him because he's 20 stone playing yeah. under 14. Sorry, Peter, if you listen to this, I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously. But I think that will definitely make a massive difference in increasing the amount of numbers that we see playing the game of rugby in the country. Because like we know that the amount of players or the amount of people playing the games of GAA is huge mm -hmm. and i think that because like it's it's just perfect the way the seasons align so well but people don't make use of it there's nearly a sense of sometimes like oh he plays rugby like from the ga community and equally there's the thing from some of the ga community uh talking about oh he plays ga and they won't go and try it but i think like we all know that the, the analysts are always talking about the skills being huge crossover between the skills of catching in the air. Um, and obviously the fitness element, there are slight differences, but you work with GA teams as well. You work with Wicklow and you work with rugby teams and there's definitely crossover in terms of the fitness as well. Like, and the, the change of direction element is huge. So I think that a lot of players from Gaelic games or Gaelic football and hurling would thrive in a rugby environment. And there's no reason that... Like if players are playing Gaelic football and hurling and they're doing dual sports anyway, why not do a dual sport and play Gaelic football and rugby? Because it'll actually be easier on them because the seasons are aligned that you won't have to play two two sports at once, essentially. Yeah, we've plenty of lads that, that will do a dual season. I suppose now Comerford probably be the most well-known of someone who's who we managed through uh managed through a Gaelic season then into a rugby season. So when that happens, it's just about communication between the two teams. Um what we're managing at the moment, we have a guy playing under 17 soccer at UCD, who's also going to be going into fifth year in Belfast College and will be uh, a member of our SCT panel. So it's it's just about constant communication. If you are trying to manage that workload, it's just about constant communication. But there's definitely a transference of skills. The running volumes, the running demands of inter-county football are, are miles ahead of where rugby is, miles ahead. Um, and there is certain positions in public within rugby that just wouldn't transfer or wouldn't transfer as well. Um, 
but I I don't think I look at like I spent a year in New Zealand and I w- would have worked for a year in New Zealand and I don't necessarily think they have a very well structured pathway. I think it's happened by accident is that they just play games all year and work on their skills all year. So they'll play a 15 aside season, rugby union season, then they'll play rugby league and then they'll play sevens and then we'll play touch. And they're just constantly playing competitive games. And, you know, I look at our, let's say a school's rugby season, I think we play about 10 to 12 games. You know, we're not playing, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. There's a, there's a full window of the summer there where people need to be playing games, experiencing competition. Um, and just from that side of it, I think that's fantastic. I think um, definitely like we spoke about, the skill development side of things is so important, but sometimes people can fall into the habit of being excellent trainers and train like Tarzan and play like Jane. And I think the more the more games people get exposed to, the more comfortable people become in competition, the earlier the better, but in, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's probably somewhere that we can meet in the middle because being involved with GA teams and then with rugby teams, the rugby teams probably don't play enough games, as you just said there, and the GA teams probably play too much. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere in the middle is probably good because like I've gone through periods with GA teams and we've played four games in 12 days or whatever, like, and it's just so much load. And already on the amount on top of the amount of running volume that they're covering. I would say anecdotally, like, and even to use Nile as an example, there's a huge crossover between the back three and the distances they'll cover and the communications level needed to play rugby in the back three at a high level and Gaelic football. That's anecdotally. And they're also the ones that will take the ball in the air an awful lot and work as a three. It's very similar to, say, working in a full back line, cornerback, full back, and uh, the other cornerback. You work in a pendulum, one lad goes up the field, you fill his space, um, even though it's on, say, a smaller field, essentially, or you have smaller space to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transference of skills is huge. The running volumes will be different. So the running, the running in inter-county GA is absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, and we would have GPS our, our rugby players with a GPS to obviously with club boys and I mean, off the top of my head, it's probably about forty percent more at Intercounty GAA, and that's it. They're both so senior cup rugby and Intercounty GAA will be both seventy minutes, so it's over the same period of time. But um, the running volumes, yeah, in, in Intercounty football are so crazy. Yeah, but it's funny mate, because when we looked at it, we played our most effective football when we ran less. Yeah, because you're in position. Yeah. I suppose you just you just get there quicker, yeah. and you're more so strong mentally. You actually need to get to that point much faster now. So we we can track our, our level of effectiveness within the game by how low our running volume was it 40 percent in terms of high speed meters the difference probably or? both mate. yeah probably both so in a senior cup game a back three player would probably cover about uh about 7k total distance and about 800 meters so that would be high speed then in an inter-county game you know in a similar position of like let's say middle eight it'll be most of them will be about 11k and 2.2 kilometers of high speed running. So be a a lot higher. Yeah, Yeah. a lot higher. Yeah. Where am I getting 40%? Total distance 40%, but then doubling in terms of high speed running, probably. In terms of then going nerdy on it to develop and hit those those running meters within training, because you want to train how you play, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, I would use tempo runs probably a lot. Now, a lot of people use mass runs as well now. I'd ha- like, I think, look, if you're doing something and you have some basis behind it, I don't really mind. I would just prefer tempos, to be honest. I think you can run it a little bit better and it's a little bit more applicable 
to the demands of the sport would would that be something that you would think about a lot uh yeah no we didn't get the opportunity to do it this year so in terms of intercounty season this year the demands were bananas so we had a we had a three-week pre-season now in wicklow we were in a very difficult position of we had just been promoted and we were going to play a three-game a three-game group stage and then potentially have either a playoff final or a relegation battle. So we're playing at a level above what we've ever played before. So the intensity is so much higher. We also only have three opportunities, basically, if you lose one, suddenly you're in a relegation battle. So on top of that as well, we made the right decision and we didn't train at all in an organized fashion over lockdown. Not once did we train. We trained some, I would take an individual maybe once or twice when they were coming back from an injury. But the demands of that were so difficult to manage. And we actually didn't really do any specific running within the sessions because the guys hadn't touched a football. The guys hadn't played the game. You know, decisions that we made, and I probably would, um, you know, having done a review, I'd probably change what we did a lot. Um, But coming into it, our stance was we need to play the game as much as possible. Mm -hmm. We haven't played the game. Um, We probably, you know, sorry, we would judge that off the way we try and do it. With having access to GPS is that on a Tuesday we try and have a game volume of high speed running, and then obviously we have our game as our as our high speed, uh, another exposure, really really high exposure. Then the Thursday would be a little bit lower, and Monday would be a little bit lower as well. In terms of yeah, in terms of conditioning and forgetting football, I suppose yeah, I, I was I love the idea of tempo runs. I, I always incorporate them. I really like Maladin Jovanovic's philosophy of increase the uh, intensity, sustainability and repeatability of, of efforts. And that's what we would have worked on massively over lockdown was the intensity of efforts, because it's no point being slow. If you get fit, you're just slow for longer. Um, yeah. So we would have spent a huge amount of time on our speed and we actually had some really, really good improvements in speed. And if we had a longer preseason, we could have spent more time working on the repeatability of those efforts and the sustainability of those efforts. Um, but I would always focus on that. If I was, you know, any GAA team I've ever taken, any rugby team I've ever taken, I always focus on the intensity of the effort first. So, can they run fast first of all? Yeah. Because there's no point to getting fitter if you're slow. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to develop both sides of it. So your low intensity kind of long duration stuff, I suppose, and then your high intensity short duration stuff, and then you're obviously working on maintaining that high intensity but as you said like the team that runs slower and runs for longer that's not going to be the thing that sets you apart and this is the thing you have to try and get through to GA players and GA coaches because they actually in terms of if you look across the the water to rugby and GA when you say to GA teams that they're going to, we're going to do a bit of fitness they're delighted they eat it up whereas when you say to a rugby team you'll always have lads being like oh don't want to do this now um, so getting through to the GA players that the team that wins football matches is the team that's better at football is a very, very important thing. You can try and develop the physical qualities to enable you to play the game better. But realistically, if you're better at football and you take more scores, the, like you're going to win the game. Like uh, I had a young guy say to me recently at a gym session, he was doing a trap bar deadlift. And I said, that's super, really well done. He said, what should I be listening? What should I be lifting on this? Mm-hmm. Shrugged my shoulder and said, mm, I don't care. <laughs> he said, What? I was like, As long as you put the ball over the bar, mate, I'll stay in a job. Like, and that's it. Like, you know, like he can lift whatever, he should lift whatever, but 
is that going to be the thing that's going to set him apart on the field? He doesn't carry a trap bar out onto the middle of the field with him. Like, so um, it's true games that you can develop the skills while replicating the demands of the sport, I suppose. And if you can get their fitness through games, then absolutely that's what you should be doing because they get more touches on the ball. They work on performing a high level of execution while under some sort of fatigue. Um, but sometimes you will, I don't really like the, the use of the phrase top-ups, but you will need a few top-ups the odd time if guys aren't getting that exposure within the games. And having the use of GPS is obviously very useful because you can identify and you'll know who is getting what they need and who's not getting what they need. So you can then apply whatever is necessary to the guys that aren't getting what they need in order to develop the qualities that they do need without saying need too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the other side of it as well, like not to just refer to them as top-ups, but you'll be able to push yourself much further physically in a specific physical block of conditioning than you will be in mm-hmm. games because people's behave, like people will look to preserve energy. So there's a South African physiologist guy called Tim Noakes who has what's called the central governor theory. Yeah. Um, so let me see if I can have this off now. Fatigue is a decision by a central nervous system in order to induce behavioral change to preserve homeostasis. So good job. Yeah, it's not bad, man. <laughs> um, I don't even have that written down. Um, I'll testify to that as well. Yeah. Um, so where my philosophy has gotten with now in terms of conditioning sessions, conditioning sessions in my eyes now are getting fit through the game. Mm-hmm with some conditioning blocks interspersed within that session so that it should be it should probably look like your worst case scenario in a game but i also recognize that the ability to push yourself physically and mentally doesn't really come from playing games it'll come from or you learn that behavior in a specific in a specific running drill or a wrestling drill or a carrying drill or something like that so it's important to have those in there as well so that they can experience a level of stress above what they'll have in the game i probably made that mistake before of trying to trying to set my conditioning up that it mimics the demands of the game perfectly whereas now i mimic or i try to go above that i go 10 percent above that i go 15 percent above that on maybe one or two occasions throughout the year you know with lands and rugby club and one of our days of the preseason we brought them into the hills in the phoenix park and just battered them just battered them like they, just that they you know they were they weren't in a position they couldn't run anymore they had to crawl up hills and stuff like that um i it's very it's very dangerous to do that sometimes not not from a physical perspective but from like how do you want to be perceived as a coach do you want yeah. to just be perceived to be the person who gets an ego trip of absolutely butchering lads because that's not what it's about it's about going above and beyond what the demands of the game are and then hopefully when you go out and you play a game you go well this is easy now yeah i've i've, I've like tim notes would say you know i've exposed myself to a stress above what would be demanded of me on a saturday or a sunday and, and now i can cope here and i'm quite comfortable here you know going through that experience as a team as well is definitely useful too like not to i think it's overplayed a lot especially in the past like the where teams will just batter their players week in week out and justify it by saying it's mental resilience training whereas you said they're like you only have to do it a couple of times a year and you'll get the benefit out of it rather than saying oh we're working on fitness but we're just doing above and beyond what you're going to experience um in a game like i heard of teams doing 
two back-to-back Bronco runs this year, like mm. which I would be just questioning. Like, and then lo and behold, the lads that are telling me this are showing up with um, adductor injuries and then hamstring injuries as well because you're not going to do that much change of direction at that intensity mm-hmm. in a game, let alone doing one maximal test. I don't know why you'd take a break and then do another one, but look, um, this is the thing. Like, There's merit in pushing your players beyond themselves, essentially, Absolutely. but you, a lot of the time you've got to manage them as well and protect them. Well, it um, needs to be safe. Like, yeah. It needs to be physically safe because the last thing you want is that somebody gets hurt. Um, so that's why I love hill runs because people don't, they can't run fast yeah. enough to hurt themselves. And they can't, they don't change direction on them. So hills are perfect for that because they're rotten and they genuinely don't get hurt. Um, the other thing is like trauma unites people, it does. Yeah. So getting getting an exposure to that throughout the year, I think is great. But also setting your sessions up so that you're relying on somebody else, if that makes sense. So one of the big things I push for now, anytime I'm conditioning a team or have a specific conditioning block is they'll be in pairs and they'll accomplish that task as a pair. And it's not just your responsibility because, you know, sometimes if we do, let's say a tempo run or a bronco run, it's that individual's responsibility to get the best out of themselves and no one else really. Whereas if you can set up a task that will challenge them physically, but also challenge them to be a good teammate, um, I think that's where you'll get real purpose and a connection between players. Do you know what you get out of that as well is a bit of crack. Oh, absolutely. Which is very, very, very important. It's understated um, a lot, like it's and undervalued, but like it has to be fun. Even at like people here, elite or elite level sport, and they just think, oh, everything done minute detail for a reason. Sometimes you just need to have a bit of fun. Like sport is meant to be fun at the end of the day, even if it is your job. You're, you're, You're playing the game and you've got to that stage because you enjoy it. So like you have to have that enjoyment throughout the session, whether you have that because of some level of competition or as you said, they're doing it with a teammate or accomplishing a task with a teammate or just connecting with your coaches, connecting with your teammates, having a chat, having a laugh. Like it's very, very important as well. Um, So typically you'll see in organizations that have been at a high level and then kind of drop off or experience a period of not get not achieving those results that they used to, it becomes a little bit toxic and they get too focused on the weeds, I suppose, and get caught up in the weeds and then forget about the why behind why they're doing it in the first place. So my question to you then would be, I would say you have a, a very big why and a very important why with each organization or each team that you're working with. Do you kind of sit down with the coaches and the team and set that why before the season? Or do you kind of have a why in your head before you go in to work with a team and then you achieve it? Or maybe both? It depends. So of the three organizations I'm involved with at the moment, I suppose we didn't, we never really formally sat down at Wicklow and gave ourselves a why. I always had it in the back of my head that I wanted to shock the nation because I felt we had some really good footballers there, some excellent coaches, and we never got the recognition that we deserved. Anytime we beat someone, it was always because they were shite, not because we were good. Yeah. The best game we ever played, the be- as, as, a, as, a, as a two-year project, the best game we played was against Calvin in a relegation playoff and we beat them. And we were just really, we, we had a collective why without 
recognizing it together as a group, as in no one sat in front of us and said, this is why we're doing this. We just had a collective why that we wanted to further with club football and we we're really pissed off the way that Cavan treated us before that game of, you know, you warm up on the back pitch and we'll stay on the front pitch and stuff like that. And we were actually just kick. Um, and that brought us together. That was a, that was a collective effort. And that was what we all understood our, our why without somebody saying it. Then with, with BlackRock and Lansdowne, that has been a collective effort from coaches to sit down discover ourselves a bit more, talk a lot about ourselves, about our history of coaching, why we like coaching, and being vulnerable, I suppose, as coaches, and actually and actually getting quite personal. And from there, then, we can come up with a collective why of why we coach. So, you know, in, in, in BlackRock, one of the big things we look for is connection, and how are we fostering connection in every single thing that we do, and that's, that's a big why. That's... I suppose the, the lockdown period has given us huge amount of time to reflect and think, well, why do we do this? Because it's clearly not about winning. It's clearly about something bigger. It's, it's working together as a group of men or women and trying to achieve something collectively because that's very, very rewarding. And there's probably not a huge amount, like the majority of work that people do probably doesn't give you that sense. So trying to go from a, a, a more physical side of things to a more, I suppose, spiritual side of things of, of why, what's our purpose here? Um, can we sit down as a group of coaches, try and find common themes in our why? So when we sat down as coaches and we presented to each other on why we coach, a lot of us were athletes that didn't achieve their potential or were treated poorly. And we re also recognize how important connection is after having a period of, of being stuck in our house for a year and a half. So those three things are massively important to us and it forms a collective collective why for us, which can we can develop a vision for that then and then we can start to build a mission around that vision of, of how are we going to get to this point? How are we going to achieve this vision that we want to have? And that's been, that's been very rewarding in Black Rock because it's made a huge amount of changes to things that we that had been left in place in terms of structure, uh, coaching structure in the school of, of getting actually changing that also going into Lansdowne and actually, okay, well, what, what do we want to achieve here? Why are we doing this? Is it just about winning? If we, if we achieve our mission and we don't win the IL, are we successful? Everybody says, yeah, we are. So it has to be personal to you and it has to be personal to the team that you're involved in um, and it has to constantly evolve. So the example I'll use is probably Tipperary football. So Tipperary had an incredibly successful year in 2020 obviously won the Munster Senior Championship, got to a senior All-Ireland final. That Semi. Was semi-final, sorry, semi-final. Um, would have been great to get the final. It would have been. <laughs> but they also, that was a 100-year anniversary of, of Buddy Sunday. I remember when they, when they walked out in that green and white jersey and I thought, wow, what an incredible thing to be a part of and have a connection to the past and have a connection to the GAA and have such a sense of belonging just because you're wearing a certain type of shirt. And I, I don't know anything about temporary football, but I imagine that that, they got more out of themselves. Obviously, there was a personality thing with guys coming back from Australia and stuff like that, but they got more of themselves, or got more out of themselves because of that connection to the past and a sense of belonging. When we played them in the league this year, they wore the same jersey. So for me, immediately that just, and, and they obviously had a very unsuccessful year this year, that for me that it looks like they tried to hang on to the same reasons why they play the game with the same sense of belonging. And for me, that just shows this and you have to evolve it. You have to sit down and start there every single year. Why are we coaching? What's our mission? What's our vision? Um, and how are we going to get there? Not let's copy and paste what worked for someone else 
or what worked for us in the past because it just doesn't work you have to it has to be organic and it has to evolve as you evolve as a coach season by season yeah you can't rest on your laurels as well like essentially like you can't just say right this worked for us this year so we're going to keep it the exact same next year and hope that it, that it works again yeah um, absolutely it has to change it has to evolve and then it's obviously very good, I would say, as a coaching group and a staff to verbalize your why and to actually reflect on it because putting that question to the group, like a lot of people mightn't have even thought about that before, like before their question to present. And then they have to be vulnerable in front of a group and then they're more comfortable being vulnerable. And obviously with coaches, a lot of the time, like people think it's this macho he-man kind of pursuit, but you can bark orders and give out all day like you won't create that buy-in but when you show a little bit of vulnerability and a little bit more of a personal touch you become a little bit more approachable for your players I suppose and then you will get well create a better buy-in from your players into what they're buying into and buying into you I suppose as a coach and into the collective too because they know your why they know you as a person they know that you're in it for the right reasons and they know the overall why of why they as a collective are trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve essentially so i would imagine that's been a massive factor in getting um the necessary buy-in from your athletes in all these different organizations yeah i think so because i think buy-in is just like show people you care know their name like like yeah simplest things ever i remember i started down in lanzan and you were starting with me and i just said uh, we were trying to talk about, you know, how we're going to set the preseason. I said, Peter, I don't really care. I just want to learn everybody's name yeah. and I want them to know that I care about them. That was all I really, that really mattered to me that first few weeks. I, yeah, the, the coaching is, is strange at the moment because this is the first year we've really focused on finding a why within those organizations, Lansdale and Blackrock. And coaching is so much more um, rewarding when you're collectively bought into the same thing. Um, that you all, that as coaches, you've collectively come together and say, this is what we want to achieve. Everybody feels a part of it. Everybody feels like they can have influence on it and it, and it matters to everybody. So I think the, la- the last few weeks of coaching are probably the most rewarding and most enjoyable of my life, to be honest, because I know where we're trying to get to. When somebody else stands in front of you and tells you why they coach, it builds such a connection with them. And if we're talking about buy-in, like I said, you just have to practice what you preach. So if you're being vulnerable with people, they'll be vulnerable with you. And again, we go back to lockdown and, and the, the ramifications of a year and a half lockdown. Um, so many times I've had a conversation with, with a player over the last few weeks at school level and at, with senior rugby players, and they talk how hard they found it, how they were depressed, how they were on medication. So sport is so much more than just turn up on a Saturday and playing a game. It's it's being with a group of like-minded individuals trying to achieve something together. And when you can define what that thing you want to achieve together is, it seems to be much more rewarding and people get much more out of it. I know I'm going to turn up at Lansdowne tomorrow on Tuesday and everybody loves being around each other after after the pre-season that we had. It's almost hard to get lads from the gym onto the pitch because everybody's just sitting there talking to each other. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, after the year that we've had to have a group that's so connected to each other is fantastic and we're seeing that on the pitch as well we had a we were in a game against Terranure on, on Friday and we were four I think we were 14-7 down had two guys in the bin but we ended up winning 31-14 uh, and a lot of it came from togetherness and 
the willingness to just get up off the floor and help your friend out. Not you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it because you're doing it for the guy on the right, the other guy on the left. And that all comes from why. Um, the more I learn about coaching, the less I actually study about coaching about the ins and outs of what exercise to do and what sets and reps you to do. The more I the more I look at, I, I always start with um, how can we get everybody connected to each other and working towards the same thing. Somebody said to me recently. They asked me what I did for a living. I said I'm a strength and conditioning coach, and they told me, "Oh, so you write programs?" That's what they said. Yeah. I said, "Yeah." Funnily enough, the program probably makes the least difference to yeah. what I do. Yeah. The most important thing, and it goes back to what you were saying about there about going down to Lansdowne, like know people's names and know at least one personal fact about them. Know like if they have a kid, if what they do for work like where they, where they went to school, who their friends are, where they go drinking on a Saturday, any piece of information, what music they listen to. And this might sound like, what does that matter to coaching? How does that matter? If I know that somebody has a young family, I'll know that their sleep may be fecked up. So I can ask them when they come down train up, well, how, how did you sleep last night? Was the baby asleep? Did, did she get make it through the night or he make it through the night? And then I know that I can manage their load off of that and look after them. And the big thing about that is obviously I'm protecting the player a little bit by managing their load. But the most important thing, as you said, there is they're like, oh, Pete actually gives a shit. Like, do you know? And then they're going to probably listen to your perspective a little bit more and value your perspective a little bit more because they'll respect you a little bit more because they'll know that you care. So, yeah, like I, I think that a lot of the programming stuff is like it's great i think it's actually i would say more of a prerequisite you kind of you do it for yourself and to know that you're doing the best that you possibly can for the team and you're programming as best as you can to develop what you need to develop but there's no point in just writing a program down that is the best program in the world on paper if you can't convey it to a group and you can't communicate it with them um because it's just on paper then it's not in practicality like it's not actually working so it's amazing that we always talk about it like everything in coaching in the coaching industry in terms of education is all theoretical mm -hmm. there's zero practicality really like they don't prepare you for it mm -hmm. and the question would be can they really prepare you for it i would say probably by letting you do it more you're going to develop a little bit more and giving you the opportunities to do it they can probably talk about it a little bit more within the education system but definitely there's an absence of that at the moment i think within snc um in probably in certain colleges definitely in certain third level education institutes but the majority of people that lecture don't coach they're just lecturers yeah. they're just academics so they just see everything as someone said this someone researched this rather than I, I don't know, certainly when I was doing a sports science degree, none of my lecturers were actively involved in coaching. Um, it's different in somewhere like Satanta College where you probably have people that are coaching at a, at a fairly good level. But certainly uh, where I did my undergrad, there was no practical side of things. I was quite lucky that I would have just volunteered for everything and would have, um, I was not weak academically, but I didn't see the value in it. I think I would have I would have failed a lot. Like it took me five years to get through college. I think I still hold a DCU record for most failed exams, which is seventeen. Um, nice. I, I wasn't. I didn't value that 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 academic side. I just valued the practical side of things. So I would jump in every single session that was going on. Any who was training, I'll train with them. Uh, who needs hands testing or 
sitting filling up the fucking yacht fridge i'll do it do you know what i mean and, and that's that was what i valued at the time um and that's probably still me but that's it because there's plenty of people plenty of people i can coach every single paper under the sun but um who cares yeah who cares i think yeah you do it for yourself essentially you keep up with the research and you try to uh put the best program together that you possibly can but as we said if it's not conveyed it doesn't really care and, and on some level as well it could be you do it subconsciously so that other coaches think that you're good and you get respect from them you might not necessarily try to do that or it might not be a healthy way of doing things but that might be something that 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 is a reason because there's a lot of dick measuring goes around in the SC industry as you know yourself and um, to put it quite eloquently mm. so my question to you would be then with all this thick measure going around, what do you think is actually the important qualities that make a good coach or are the important qualities that make a good coach? First of all, to, to, to be an effective coach, I think you need to be a failed athlete <laughs> and be very competitive. As in not, you know, have, have great notions about making it further in some sort of sport and then not making it. Uh, if you're untalented as an athlete, that's great for coaching because, sorry, if you're untalented and competitive, you'll probably be a good coach because you will have to find ways to compete and try and move up the ladder. So as a young lad, a very average athlete, I would have, the internet just come out. I was just, you know, how, how can I get faster? How can I jump harder? How can I do all this kind of stuff? And then start to apply it to myself. So I started training really, really young, probably, probably in second year when I was 14 and would just look to research as much as possible. Um, so I think that, that helps you start you off, but then um, emotional intelligence is probably the biggest one. Yeah. Um, and that's something I've gotten much, much, much better at. Probably would have been a robot a few years ago, and probably have just gotten better at that. Um, allowing myself to be a lot more vulnerable, valuing emotions as well, valuing emotions in other people. I found uh, to has really brought my co- my coaching on, rather than you know, um, and being much more empathetic is probably what's number one for me at the moment. Probably, and it's an area that I'm trying to get much, much better at all the time. And then what would be your ultimate goal then in terms of coaching? How would you define success for yourself or for another coach? Like what does success look like for you? Uh, well, it depends. It, it, it'll come from why am I doing this? What's my vision for the future? And have I achieved it or, or have I figured out my mission? So at the moment, um, my goal is to be, is to, is to create the best underage strength and conditioning pathway of any school in the world whether that's not just rugby, that's every single sport that's played here. How will I measure that? It'd be a different one to do, but like currently we're third in the world for juicing players to the pro game uh, in rugby. You know, we want to be number one. Can we get to number one? You know, in, in 10 years, can we be the number one school? We're the, uh, of the two teams that are, the two schools that are in front of us, uh, we're the only one that has an indigenous population, if that makes sense. Not indigenous, but we start with them as junior infants and they come all the way through. Mm-hmm. Well, the other two schools ahead of us Harper is a finishing school, so they just get the best rugby players in, in Gloucester and put them in a school together. Then Gray's College gets, gets a lot of scholarships, so they'll actually pay for it. We don't do that in Blackbar. That's ultimately where I want to take it. I, I, I want to run the best pathway of any school in, in the world. And the best pathway doesn't mean that the athletes leaving the school are bigger and stronger and faster than everybody. It means they're, they're more emotionally mature. They're more caring um, so that the four you, when we put our vision together uh, we talk, spoke spoke about the four values of the school be there be caring be grateful be truthful so there are four values that we try to instill in every single 
person who comes through a PE curriculum or through a sporting curriculum. So it's not, it's no, no, it's not just about the physical side of things. It's, it's, can we actually look to change them as on the, on the people side of things? And we deal with a very specific percentage of the population. We deal with probably the most privileged population in the country. And their life can look very similar sometimes of, um, of, you know, five bedroom house, get dropped school and range over. This isn't, this isn't to, to look down on them or, or to berate them, but they don't get exposed to life outside the, the black rock bubble. And a lot of what we try to do is expose them to, to things outside that. So uh, we run an MMA program with a rugby player. So we bring them into the, into the inner city and they learn how to fight because they don't necessarily, the majority of them don't experience conflict or confrontation in their life. And we want to expose them to that. We want to expose them to violence because the more you get exposed to violence, the more accustomed to it, the less likely you are to do it in, in an on-the-street situation. Yeah. Um, you know, and to you'd be better able to handle it if it does, unfortunately, yeah, that's, occur. That's, yeah, that's one, that's one side of things. Um, so that's been a big one for us is, is getting them outside of the black rock bubble and putting them in situations that they won't experience otherwise. So... Um, can we, you know, what sort of what sort of charity work are we going to do next week, next year? Are we going to work with a hospice? Are we going to work with a children's hospital? Where are we going to go? And how are we going to give them exposure to give back, but also uh, become become more well-rounded and, and see, you know, see what life's like outside the black hole? Because um, I sometimes I don't know if if they realize what the outside world is like sometimes. Yeah, you're in some ways giving them some element of chaos um, and how to deal with that then, I suppose, or some change to the regular humdrum kind of day-to-day what goes on, essentially, because that's how you develop as a person outside your comfort zone, I suppose. So putting them a little bit more outside their comfort zone, if that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And definitely, like, that would be a big one. And I think that's where there's sometimes a misunderstanding of what youth strength and conditioning is because like, I know that not necessarily everything you said there is like alluding to the strength and conditioning realm of what goes on in the school. But in some ways it is, I suppose, isn't it? Um, Like you do the strength and conditioning, but it's, it's not just strength and conditioning. There's other life lessons that they learn through that kind of pursuit. Don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So gratitude would be a big one. So I suppose the best example is we went, we got some guys that are currently serving the Army Ranger Wing to take us up a mountain and we had to build our own huts and sleep out in the rain and build a fire and cook our own food in the fire. And if that's packaged the wrong way, it can look like a punishment or like, oh, these lads are soft or whatever, but actually it's just an exposure to this. Some people live like this and you need to understand it. And, and gratitude, that's where, that's where we believe that gratitude comes from is, is recognizing how lucky you are um, and you know that that still sticks out in my mind as, as a perfect example of like that was the heavy. I remember it was an October night and we were up the mountains at Wicklow and we like built built our own. We had no tent, so it was just like built out of twigs and rocks. And it was the heaviest night's rainfall of the whole year, and everybody got soaked. And everybody couldn't wait to get home. And I remember on the bus on the way in uh, or on the way back, uh, head coach just stood up and said, "Make sure you go home." And you hug your parents and you say thank you so much for all you do for us because you know that gratitude has you know gratitude is so important to us and that's just one way that we try and foster it 
I'm sure they now reflect back on that as well and have a good laugh about it, like with the crack that they had, like even though it probably didn't seem like a good crack at no, the time. No, it didn't, but like we um, we always try to have events outside of rugby. We just got like, maybe events isn't the right word, but they'll always remember that. So we try and plan, like we don't just plan the year for, oh, we're going to do isometric strength in November. We try and go, well, what are we doing for a bit of crack here? Or what are we doing for as a, as something to remember? What are we doing this month that's memorable? Because if you're not doing that, well then their kids, like you know, their kids, they should they should be having a great time. They should be making memories. Yeah, enjoyment comes back to that, like mm-hmm. um, what we said earlier. Now, before we go on to quick fire questions, I just want to touch on something that you're probably sick of talking about, which is Ultimate Hell Week, which you participated in. Was it last year or yeah, before? Last year, yeah. season two, yeah. Last year, yeah. season two. And I only saw last week that there's a new season coming out with celebrities in it. Um, and it's coming out quite well-known soon. Civilians. Yeah, well-known civilians. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Um, firstly, talk to me about the pursuit for yourself, what you gained from it, how you found it. And then after that, I suppose, what do you expect to see going on with these well-known civilians? Um, probably what I got out of it was a huge amount of confidence that I can excel in some pretty difficult situations. I feel I got a level of credibility in my coaching so that when I ask people to run up the hills in Phoenix Park so they get sick, they look at me and go, in fairness, somebody's fucking done it. Do you know what I mean? So there is a certain level of credibility that I got from it. I fucking got so much from it, man. Like it was, it was an unbelievable eight days. Like you just, you're on the go constantly. Whether you're doing a big event, you're in the bus back, whether you're just like half the time the boys would just come into the room and toss it upside down, you just have to clean the whole thing back up again. So um you do that in the dorms there, do you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do make yeah. it. Um deal with it, lads. Yeah. Bit of chaos. Put it back together. Yeah. Um I learned so much about what brings people together because there was 20, was there 26 or 28 of us? I think it was 20, it might have been 28 of us. There was 28 of us. And once we got rid of the first few people, there was such a tight bond amongst people that literally only known each other for 48 hours. So having having a collective, and I, I suppose I lived that, of having a collective goal of getting as far in this thing as possible brings people together and you're, you're doing things for other people. So you're... You need, I needed to make sure that the jerry cans were filled with water because if I didn't make sure they were filled with water and when the lads saw that they weren't filled with water, they tossed the whole room upside down and they'd make everybody else clean and they just make me just make me stand there and look at them. So I there was a, a certain level of selflessness throughout the whole thing and it's just about getting other people across the line. And as the as the days go on, the bonds grew so much stronger and I got to a stage of like, no, I'm not going to quit now because I want to go back and I'm going to have dinner with the lads. Like That's how strong it was. Then other stuff, other stuff I probably would have brought into coaching would be some of the events for class to be part to be part of them was actually unreal. And it kind of opened my mind to exposure to stressful situations outside of rugby and, and how it is applicable. Like there is just some people can just stay relaxed and just manage it. Like I remember we were walking through Glendalock and suddenly this huge explosion goes off. And then uh, one of the directing staff come over the hill, come over the hill, come over the hill. And then there was like two lads who were amputees 
who they <laughs> they made it look like they had their just leg, had their legs blown off and there's like blood squirting out of them. And we learned some first aid skills in there, so we like had to apply a tourniquet to them, put them onto a stretcher, and then carry them all the way up to the top of the lock. So I, you know, so, so some of that's, that just kind of opened my mind to exposure to stress above the level of what you experience in a sporting pitch is priceless for an athlete. So particularly the, the MMA stuff we do is another side of things of, of putting people in a, a one-on-one confrontation where they have to fight somebody. Suddenly, life's pretty easy after that. And playing a game of rugby is actually not that hard after that. If you've had someone trying to break your arm and you can stay calm in that, you can stay calm in it. It's probably another hour of conversation if we keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Like exactly. It's, yeah. it's so it's so big, man. It's so big as a concept. And I was so lucky that I stayed in for so long that I have so many different memories of it. And it's something. It's it's actually only something I probably finished processing in the last three months. That it was there was so much going on, and you don't have time to reflect when you're in there. That it probably took me a year to. I, I don't want to say get over it, but it probably took me a year to get over it. That was that. There was just so much going on in my head, so much reflection going on after that. So obviously you could do your best, I suppose, to be prepared for it, but it's quite difficult as well to be prepared for something like that. Do you think you could have prepared any better for it? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that really hurt me was was the state my shoulders are in and the mobility of my shoulders overhead. So anything overhead was quite painful. Um, of just years of neglect of my shoulders. Um, that was one of the things that would have set me off to actually step away was that the, the pain mixed with the sensory deprivation mixed with sleep deprivation, I was actually probably going bananas and I needed to step out of there. Otherwise I was going to have a meltdown on television. I didn't want to do that. Um, Obviously. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to do that. It wasn't X Factor, man. Yeah. Um, Get the pity vote. There was no yeah, voting no, to, no, to keep that in. No. Keep number no, seven no. in. Um, I trained really well for it. I was very good at being exposed to the cold. I was very good at car. Like, if you watch, if you watch the first season, you can actually just use your head and go, "What do I need? What are the demands of this?" Like, and majority of the time, the demands are: Can I carry something heavy in a number of different ways, either on my back or in my hands? Can I carry that up a hill for two to three hours? Let's let's do that loads in our training. Can I be exposed to the cold for long periods of time? Okay, that's very easy to do in training. If you just do those two things, if you just do the way I split my training, well, I did training camps. So I started off doing three events every day over three days and then built up to doing four events every day over seven days and then took a full week off before I went in there. And the events would be go up Brayhead five or six times with a 50 kilo pack and come back down again. And just my big focus for my training for that was being able to tolerate the workload so that I wouldn't break down. I knew I wasn't going to be the fastest up the hills. There was going to be, there was going to be some really good endurance. Like I'm not an endurance athlete at all. I knew there's going to be some very good endurance athletes there that I wouldn't be able to beat, but I knew. You didn't have to do But I didn't have to. I just needed to be good enough. But I just, I knew the more robust I can make myself, the more likely I'm going to stay in there. So one of the first, one of the first days, I started training for it and I took a 40 kilo pack up and down Glen Block. And um, remember on the way down, my VMO was just cramped and I couldn't move. I was like, right, I need to make sure I keep exposing myself to this. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this is going to happen in the, in the TV show and I'm like a fucking monk. Because the other side of things is like, if I went out after the first day or the second day, like that's my career over. Like no one's ever going to fucking hire me to coach their team again. Because yeah. I was the lad that went out on the first day. Um, 
in your head, but on the same side, there might have been that many people watching. And yeah, there might have exactly. Yeah. In your head, everything is the end of the world. Like, on a you'd be just, you'd be known in your head. Like, oh, everybody knows yeah, that yeah. I, I stepped out. But um, it, it, like, that's the thing as well with mental resilience. Some people look for mental resilience all the time. Repeated exposure to a stimulus. Yeah, 100%. And there, was never a the point, there was never a point in the whole thing that I really thought about quitting. I remember, I remember on the third or fourth day, they brought me in for an on-camera interview and they said, I haven't thought about quitting. I said, no. And that was just down to the training that I put in. I didn't put enough effort into how horrible that sensory deprivation stuff was. Mm. I, we'd slept for about 10 to 12 hours over the course of eight days. I'd lost eight kilos. I'd lost eight kilos in weight. And I didn't, I didn't, like, if you did that on day one, you'd be fine. Do you know what I mean? If you went into that fully, fully sleep, fully, you get through it. Yeah. It's 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever. You get through it fine. You wouldn't even have an issue. But off the back of that. Um, that was your first. Was that your first time? No, thinking I, mean, of, I actually got my mate to do it. With, like, so. <laughs> no, but that was, was that your first time of thinking, I'm going to drop out. And when you had thought, you were like, I'm out. Um, it was, yeah. And it wasn't something that you'd want to persevere with. To be honest, like I know there's a case recently uh, of the British version getting sued um, for PTSD post yeah, that sensory that deprivation actually, yeah. bit. So it's not a, it's not like oh, I fucking broke, I, I, uh, I have a dead leg here. I'm just going to horse on with it. Yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. your brain and it's, it's pretty important. It's really important. And it's your, well, it's not your, for you, but for most your, people. <laughs> it's state of welfare. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's, it'd fucking drive you up the walls, to be honest, man. And I know that the, the boys that stayed in there months after um, because, because of like you dropped out pretty early into yeah, that didn't yeah, you yeah so yeah. like this how long did they have to they did somewhere like 10 somewhere something like between 10 and 12 hours and i i just i knew the signs early of where it was going and yeah. going towards fucking melting your brain yeah said, am i making this to 12 hours and is the juice worth the squeeze yeah the question yeah. i just continually ask myself so is it worth getting an acute low enough level of PTSD, potentially having a meltdown on television, and then probably need to go to a therapist after this? Is it worth that? Or will I just step out here? Yeah. And up until then, the answer to it is the juice worth the squeeze. Yeah, this, this is great. This is very authentic. I'm, I'm part of this. Um, that last event, um, it was, yeah, it, it did it absolutely melted my brain, but it also probably i probably lost buy into the whole thing as, a, as yeah. a concept it was very it had lost its authenticity it was very fake it was very clear that we were just camera fodder and they wanted us to have a melt i yeah, believe they, they were wanted trying, us to melt down like they wanted emotional porn for people to watch do you think that the lads that stayed in there then well probably everybody that went in had a clear why was there commonalities amongst those those three lads that stayed in till the end uh, we probably never spoke about it. The, the, the commonalities were definitely a level of introversion and, and being very comfortable in yourself. That was probably the biggest one. Like no one was the loudest there, um, but everyone was comfortable in their own skin. That was definitely. Now, the other three were very high-performing athletes. So obviously, Porks in an Ireland final this weekend. Yeah. Niall can run something like a sixteen-minute 5K or something, and then John is third or fourth in the country for the four hundred meter hurdles. Um, so there's a, a huge amount of endurance 
there, like they're top, top level Irish endurance. So the 14 year old that was slower than everybody then, Daniel Moore that went researching yeah. online, he did quite good then in the end, didn't he? Uh, yeah, still see it as a failure though. Like the, again, like the, the, the vision for it was to, was to finish it, I didn't do that. Even. Still, still wasn't, still wasn't successful, but I, uh, commonalities were, yeah, a high level of training and a high level of understanding of yourself. And the whole week is like an internal conversation with yourself because I never, I never felt like quitting up till then, but you still have that conversation with yourself. What am I doing here? This is fucking mental. Um, I just got, you know I me, mean? I just got tear gassed on yeah. fucking television. <laughs> Fuck my app. Yeah. You know, but um, never felt, never felt like going until that, until that last part of the other lads, I think the other three were so fit that it didn't take that much out of them. Genuinely don't think it took that Like Pork and Niall set the record for the 27K hike we did, like out of all the army, like out of the history of the Irish Army Ranger wing. Do you know what I mean? They said, yeah. they said like they were two physical freaks and then John is a freak as well, um, physically, as well as he's a Pilates instructor. So I think that those stress positions and stuff, he was just like, this is my job. Like they're yeah. fucking all stress positions for my job. But in terms of you saying that it's failure, that's a question of perspective as well, because that's outcome focused rather than process focused. You probably get, you've said you've gained an awful lot from it. So yeah. in some ways you could determine it's some sort of a success, even though you didn't achieve the outcome. Like if you contrast that to what you said about Lansdowne, if you don't win the AIL and you achieve your why, is it going to be a success? Then yeah. Did you achieve your why? Um, no, Let's see. Okay. Because I always would have wanted to be in the army. I was colorblind, so I failed the medical. And I wanted to see how far I could go in that sort of... Now, the real army ranger wing selection is about six months long. It's not eight mm. days long. So it's not a perfect example. But I set out to finish it, and I didn't finish it. I had a goal. I had a, I had a vision for it, and I didn't do that. So I do see it as a failure. But I also understand how much I got from it, that I still believe I made the right decision of putting myself out. And having the respect of the actual soldiers in there and having them speak quite highly of me on television is, is something that really matters to me because I do ask I do uh, ask myself the question of if I passed the course and I thought I was a dickhead now suddenly is that, is that a success or a failure or if I, I fail the course but they speak quite highly of me and they have respect for me is that better so ultimately I set out to do something I didn't do it but I definitely got a huge amount of it along the way. If you passed the course though and they found you to be a dickhead, you probably wouldn't fit in in the army as a, a good soldier. Because... That's, the th- that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. So you probably would fail the real thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, quick fire questions though. Yeah. Um, proudest achievement to date? Blue belt in jiu-jitsu because you just get the shit kicked out of me for a year and a half. Literally, was everyone's bitch for a year and a half. Um, and then probably beating Cavan in a relegation playoff. I was unreal. I've never been part like the teams I play usually usually were winning things and yeah. it's, it's finals we're getting to, but a relegation playoff is a different level of stress and to win that. Jesus, yeah. yeah. Beat Especially uh, after they made you warm up on the backfield. Yeah, yeah. They'll never do that again. <laughs> and favorite athlete of all time. I did have to think about this. Um Alex Honnold, the free the yeah. the free climber, because if he makes a mistake, he does. I think everybody has a, a fair level of respect for him yeah, after that yeah, free yeah. solo. Um, favorite rugby player of all time? Um, I know he's English, probably Johnny Wilkinson. Probably yeah. would have looked up to him a lot when I was a young lad. Um, you don't have to mention that he's English. Yeah, <laughs> no. mate, he dropped he dropped a goal to win the World Cup off the front foot. Yeah, 
Like, no problem. That's himself. unreal. Yeah. Um, and particularly the way he's evolved himself over the years of actually becoming less OCD and actually looking after himself mentally. Yeah. I, I think he's, uh, he would have, he would impact me a lot. Yeah. yeah. Same as that. He, a big Johnny Wilkinson fanboy, his episode of the High Performance Podcast was fantastic as well. Artist you've been listening to a lot recently. Um, Christian Moore. Yeah. Always a good one. Books you've been reading. Reality is Broken by Jade McGonagall. And then another book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. What's the biggest thing you've learned in the last 12 months? Understand why you're doing things. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? Don't try so hard. Thanks a minute, Dan. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Peter.